Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. In this episode, I continue reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland, my memoir about loving the church, but in the end, leaving it. I'd graduated from divinity school and was ready, finally, to be ordained, except that My marriage had fallen apart as the year wound up, so I wouldn't be ordained. Unlike my friends and classmates, I was graduating into some kind of vocational oblivion. But, like Jesus in the desert, I was not alone. Unseen forces conspired to minister unto me and prepare me for what lay ahead. This is Chapter 6, Part 1. I lay back on the sand. It shifted beneath my weight to receive me. I watched the darkening sky suddenly burst into flame on the horizon as the setting sun reappeared beneath a distant cloud bank. Soon, stars would appear. A warm breeze stirred the leaves in the trees high above my head. The sweet smell of the forest floor mingled with the lapping at the water's edge, both bearing witness to the endless cycles of death and resurrection. Behind me, through the trees, counselors were putting campers to bed in their cabins. They were telling stories and singing songs. There were gentle bursts of laughter. I was startled by a sudden movement to my left. A magnificent blue heron lifted off from the shore a short distance away. At first, summer camp had seemed like a sentence but I had asked for it myself. Barred from ordination, uncertain what to do next, I'd gone back to see Archbishop Garnsworthy. I was unwilling to sell shoes, I told him. I wanted to do something in the church to continue my journey toward ordination. Whatever else was going on in my life, I felt ready to do something. He raised his eyebrows. He smiled. Maybe a summer job then, he mused. The diocesan camp needed a chaplain. Not Kuchiching, where I'd worked before as a teenager, but Moorland's Kawagama, the church camp for inner-city kids. The diocese was just then trying to fill that position. Garnsworthy was like that. He may have been stern and intimidating, but in truth he favored a little spirit in his clergy. So I think he liked it that I came back to him like that a month after he'd given me his answer. It made him willing to take a chance on me. Maybe we could continue exploring my ordination, he said, while I spent the summer months attending to the wounded children who came to camp. 
as I'm sure he was aware, it would be an opportunity to attend to my own wounds as well. The archbishop went further. Beyond that, he said, leaning back in his chair, studying me, who knows? Maybe you should go to Cookstown. You know Dave Ward. Well, he's left the ministry. They're going to need someone to help them pick up the pieces. So? It was a suspended time that summer at camp. All my concerns for ordination, for a salary, for future ministry were in the hands of other people. My separation from Joan, as hurtful as it had been, was also mercifully amicable. We corresponded through the summer as we worked through what had happened between us. We didn't want to trash the care we felt for one another just because circumstances got out of hand. There was no going back. It was a time instead to reflect, to breathe, and to move on. The work at the camp turned out to be great fun, as engaging for me as it was for the kids. I felt no constraints on the sort of program a camp chaplain might offer. I was not interested in evangelism. I wasn't there to preach salvation. But I wanted to be a presence that might become invitational to the spiritual life I was seeking for myself. I was aware that I was there for the teenaged counselors as well as for the campers, perhaps even more for them. At the start of each new camp session, I introduced a new theme we would explore together. In one session, I wanted to emphasize the gift each of us represents to the world in our individual uniqueness and in our differences from one another. I created two cardboard mascots to serve my purposes, Eunice and Minus. They became our daily friends as they helped us work out in skits and object lessons how to live with our differences. The counselors saw even more possibilities for Eunice and Minus. I would sometimes return to my cabin to find the two cardboard cutouts in compromising positions on my bunk. I offered something called the Daily Chap Wrap. It was an opportunity during quiet time after lunch for counselors or older campers to sit with me and explore issues and topics that mattered to them. Many of the issues were, in fact, theological. Was there really a person called God? What did Jesus have to do with anything? Who wrote the Bible? Other questions were about personal relationships. How do you know if you love someone? How far should you go with them? I may have done more talking about faith in those sessions at the camp than I would have in a whole summer of sermons from a pulpit in a church. It was a living testament to the relational model I had learned from young life, winning the right to be heard. As I became accepted among the camp staff as one of them, they began making use of me in ways I wouldn't have expected. The camp director drew me into her confidence as she made personnel decisions. She also shared with me some of her own personal concerns, as if I were her chaplain, too. I was invited to go along on a four-day canoe trip. The out-tripper needed assistance with a group of teenaged girls. The assistance he needed had little to do with portaging and setting up camp, and a lot to do with managing the mercurial moods and constant tiffs among the young campers. These were inner-city girls, and the demands of wilderness camping required a level of cooperation that was new to them. But first, they had to put away their combs and their curlers. One girl actually brought a hairdryer along on the trip, 
its useless cord hanging from her hand as it dawned on her that there were no electrical outlets in the woods. For the last session of the season, our theme featured a miniature ocean-going vessel. Like Eunice and Minas, it was made out of cardboard. I wanted to explore life as a voyage. On the last night of camp, when the campers had all left, the staff drank beer and danced to loud music in the dining hall, ending by tradition with Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Then we staggered down to the shore to launch the ship into the lake. We set it aflame with Eunice and Minas as its hapless passengers going down with the ship to their murky deaths. Some of us stumbled back to one of the cabins. We sat around on the floor and continued to drink and to laugh and to celebrate an excellent summer together. My head was spinning, or was it the room? Suddenly, a convulsion deep in my gut propelled me toward the door. I spewed the contents of my stomach as I flew through the air. It was the last and perhaps most lasting impression some would have of their summer chaplain. The season ended for all of us, and something new was about to begin. There's a lady who's sure All that glitters is gold And she's buying the stairway to heaven Through all the seasons leading up to my ordination, I didn't have a guardian angel. I had many. Like a relay team, each one carried me one step further toward the possibility of my serving the church and of growing into the adult I wanted very much to become. Tim Foley had been among the first at St. John's, and then again when I served as his student assistant in Aaron Mills. We continued to stay in touch after my graduation from Trinity and through the early days of my marriage separation, but we drifted apart after that. I had a career to pursue, and he had a parish to run. In my last year at Trinity, having been cleared by ACPO, I was provided by the diocese with an examining chaplain. Colin Proudman's role was to guide my steps toward ordination. He was a parish priest, a formidable theologian, and a left-leaning champion of the Church's social agenda. He was also a former merchant marine who loved sailing probably more than he loved the Church or anything— his dream, which he eventually fulfilled, was to sail around the world. For now, Colin said he needed a crew for his open-deck, 13-foot sailboat. This was laughable, considering his sailing prowess. It was most certainly a ploy, a way to spend time with me without it feeling like an interview. I gladly accepted his invitations. Under sail, cruising leisurely on Lake Ontario, or zipping smartly across Lake Simcoe, with the wind in our hair and the sun in our eyes, we could discuss important things as men tend to do, not eyeball to eyeball, but while focusing on something else. Or we would just sail. On matters of faith and public policy, Colin was a scrapper, at one synod meeting, he rose to the microphone to speak to the subject of the ordination of gay people. While sometimes the church needed precision in its theology, he argued, this was an issue that required not more definition, but less. We needed, he said, loopholes large enough to drive a truck through. That's my guy, I thought to myself. 
On matters of personal piety, Colin was an iconoclast. I once wrote a note to Colin, doubting my worthiness as a future minister. When I imagined being a priest, I told him, all I could see was the crushing mediocrity of my so-called gifts. I had not proven myself to be a great scholar, nor an evangelist, nor even a man of prayer. He replied in writing that many of us have such misgivings about our ministries. Those misgivings sometimes drive us, he said. Sometimes they defeat us. But then he told me what he thought I could do with those misgivings. He wrote, I believe these fantasies should be seen for what they are, and then buried and the stone rolled across the mouth of the tomb. The real praying, studying, evangelizing Brian is, I believe, what God wants from you, not a fantasy modeled after someone else. One day, during the summer of my chaplaincy at Merlin's Kawagama, Colin showed up at the camp dock in his sailboat. He asked if I'd like to go for a sail. I would skipper, he said, and he would crew. I felt ready to take the helm, but not with a master sailor on board. I was nervous as we headed out to tack back and forth across the lake. Leo, I called, just as he used to do as the boom swung across the open cockpit. I did okay, and nobody drowned. But I may have parted Colin's hair with our speedy return. I let the mainsail out at the last possible second as we raced toward the dock, which fortunately proved just the right thing to do. We glided smoothly to a full stop. Running his hand through his hair, Colin breathed a sigh of relief. I had a number of visits from other guardian angels that summer. One was Roland Hill, the executive archdeacon of the diocese. He drove the three hours up from Toronto to check on my progress at camp, but he also came to discuss with me the very suggestion the archbishop had floated about my being posted as an interim minister to the parish of Cookstown. It would only be a half-time position for now, he said, so I would have to find other work as well. And I wouldn't be ordained right away. I would be called the student in charge, an odd designation implying the disciple was to be the master. I could live in the rectory, he said, and I could get back in the queue for ordination. The subject of my marriage never came up, they must have assumed that, wherever I was in the divorce process, it was now a legal matter, not an ethical one, and it would work itself out. In the meantime, I was proving useful to the Church. I received a formal letter of offer several days after Archdeacon Hill's visit from Alan Reed, the suffragan or assistant bishop of the diocese. The letter asked if I was in agreement with the proposal put forward by the Archdeacon. <laughs> was I? I shot back my reply by return mail. I would not yet be ordained when I started my new ministry in Cookstown. That meant, technically, I didn't qualify for the post-ordination training program required for new ordinands, known informally as potty training. This seemed odd. All the other ordinands were serving in parishes under the day-to-day -day supervision of a rector. I was being sent out to work alone, but denied a program that might have supported me in that work. Maybe they just wanted to keep their options open by not inserting me yet into the system in case I didn't work out. Instead, 
When I started in Cookstown, in order to make sure I didn't totally wreck the place, the diocese assigned me a supervisor, John Dobson. He was a senior priest from the neighboring parish of Alliston, just down the road. Somehow, in his mid-seventies, he had escaped detection as being well past the mandatory retirement age for a full-time parish priest, so we were well suited to each other. He was an illegally functioning priest, and I was an unordained minister doing ministry. The thought amused us, each of us a rogue, doing things our own way, outside the usual bounds of convention. John and I would meet up every other week to discuss situations that had arisen in the performance of my duties. I would phone him at other times with questions I couldn't answer myself. What was the process for marrying divorced people? How do you use the Book of Common Prayer for a funeral when they want communion as well? How long would I have to wait to be ordained? He couldn't answer the last question, so I wrote to the Archbishop. I suggested that, considering the pastoral responsibilities I had taken on at Cookstown, it might be useful if we reopened the question of my ordination. Perhaps we should set a date fairly soon, so that I might minister to my flock at the very least as a deacon in charge. This was not the only time I would prove a source of entertainment for my bishops. But entertainment, not irritation. They seemed to be pleased to have me on board. I moved into the rectory in Cookstown at the end of the summer. It was a large, century home set on a hill across the main street from St. John's Church at the east end of town. The house was tall and imposing, with two stories, a white stucco exterior, and a wide porch on the west side to sit and take in the sunset. The interior had been renovated during Dave Ward's time. Keith, the dairy farmer and one of Dave's early lieutenants, had come in with a crew of men from the church to take out the wall between the living room and dining room, a support wall. They'd replaced it with hand-hewn oak posts and a beam from one of the old barns on Keith's property. This opened up the place, which was already large, to become far more house than a single student in charge knew what to do with. Cookstown was a rustic village of some 900 people, a crossroads of Victorian homes and quaint shops set amidst rolling bucolic countryside of pastures and cornfields. Drive a quarter mile in any direction from the town centre, and you were in open farm country. The Anglican parish of Cookstown actually comprised two congregations, St. John's in town and Little St. Luke's, Pinkerton, which was on a secondary road about a mile south of town. St. Luke's was a tiny brick building built in the 1920s, surrounded by a split-rail fence and cows. I never found out where or even what Pinkerton was supposed to be. An old town blown away by the winds of time? A proposed village site that never actually materialized? An idea in someone's head? There was nothing there but the church the wind, and the cows. I had never lived in a small town, and it took some getting used to. I learned, for instance, that neighbors don't take kindly to the sight of a young man's laundry hanging in the breeze off the rails of his porch. 
My neighbors to the west offered me the use of their dryer, if that's what I needed. I didn't. I had a fully functioning dryer of my own in the back room, but I got their message. I learned that the massive vegetable garden on the property produced things, all of its own accord, I knew not how, things I would then have to deal with, like asparagus, which I hated. But somehow, when they're from your own garden, their eager little tips breaking ground in the early spring before anything else can muster the strength, you can cut them and boil them in water, then roll them in butter, add some lemon and bacon bits, and they don't taste half bad. Also, if you plant cucumber seeds in mounds, just a few of them, evenly distributed, at the far end of the garden, they send out spiny tendrils overnight to choke everything else in sight. But you can use the yield to make pickles, which the ladies of the parish would help you with, offering recipes and advice from their years of experience, and then taking pride themselves when you gave them samples from your first briny batch. I learned that old houses in the country come with residents with squatter's rights. I would place my mouse traps strategically around the kitchen with small bits of cheese on the catch and then listen for the traps to spring as I lay in bed at night. When the cheese disappeared but the traps remained unsprung, I tried rat poison, which I laced into dabs of peanut butter. The mice took the bait but then went off to die a slow, painful death somewhere inside my walls, sending their odoriferous ghosts to haunt me for days afterward. I learned that sometimes you just have to live and let live. Which is what I hoped the town folk would do when they noticed the comings and goings at the big white house on the hill. They noticed when I had house guests, especially if one was a female friend from school days which was entirely platonic, or if another was my new girlfriend from the city which was not. They noticed when I went to the liquor store, and how long my car was parked in my driveway, raising questions about what a minister did all day anyway. But I had never been attention-averse, exactly, so this was better than no attention at all. We were getting to know one another. I've been reading from Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. Thanks for listening. Living in the country was a grounding experience for a young man from the suburbs who'd moved all his life. I loved it. Even as I felt the watchful gaze of all those prying eyes, it was like going home again to North Vancouver, except that I had work to do here, healing work, both for my congregation and for myself. As always, if any of this resonates with your own story, perhaps the experience of living in the country, I'd love for you to share that story. Leave a post in the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. Next time, I finally received the flight clearance I was waiting for to be ordained a deacon in the church. But first... I would have to prepare my heart by cleaning up my act. See you then. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late.